Welcome to Inside the War Room. So good to have you to hear about one of the hmm, biggest failures in FBI history. Perhaps there are a lot of those, but this one is up there. I'm talking, of course, Lee Will's new book, A Spy in Plain Sight, the inside story of the FBI and Robert Hansen, America's, America's most dangerous, I can't speak, America's most damaging Russian spy. Uh, of course, Elise Will, if you're not familiar with her, she's got a ton of books out. Be sure to check them out. She's one of the of the nation's most prominent trial lawyers and highly regarded commentator, commentators. She's a regular commentator for CNN and also appears on CBS, NPR, and many other news outlets. She also was a legal analyst and reporter for Fox News. So with that being said, we're going to talk to Elise. And remember, give away a copy of In the Lion's Den at the end of the month at warroommedia.com. A free account is all you had to sign up for for your chance to win that. Let's get to my conversation with Elise. Elise, it's wonderful to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Hey, Ryan. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me on. Okay, so we're just... Just, I was asking you offline about upcoming projects. We can yeah. talk about that at the end. But you were saying something interesting, so let's talk about that for a second. Um, this book, A Spy in Plain Sight, as I said in the introduction, um, is your current one. How did you come across this idea and the process? Unpack, pull the pull the, the curtain back for us, if you will, on how you come across the story and what made you want to write about it. Yeah, and what we were talking about just a second offline is that the hardest part, actually, of writing a book, I mean, obviously writing and researching it, but it is coming up with the idea of figuring out who you're going to focus on, what subject you're going to focus on, and then running with it, right? So um, yeah, A Spy in Plain Sight, the Robert Hansen story has always interested me. And I think it's my background. Um, A, I was a federal prosecutor myself and dealt with a lot of FBI agents and knew about Hansen through them. And then my father was... um, way back before Hanson was arrested, my father was an FBI agent. And so I kind of grew up around the FBI mentality and he talked about Hanson and what a black mark Hanson really was on the FBI and how sad he was about it, honestly. And how could that possibly have happened? I mean, this guy got away with spying for 20 years, 20 years while in the FBI. And my dad just was, you know, arms up, flailing, like, how could that happen? And so when I was coming up with this idea of who to target and, you know, who to investigate, Hanson was just a like, you know, it made so much sense for me, for my personal background that I glommed on to Hanson. And then when I realized through contacts in the FBI and elsewhere that I could get amazing material, you know, firsthand material, I was off to the races. You know, that's where the detective part of me comes out. And I have fun with the research, which took Ryan, the whole book, I mean, from start to finish took before, you know, start to publication, two years. So it was a long, long, a long road. Yeah. So you'll hear authors say that it took me two years to research this. Is that 40 hours a week for two years? Is it 10 hours a week here? Oh. 10 hours a week here? What does that mean? Interesting. I don't think I've ever been asked quite that question that way. Um, well, I... Look, writing is a job, right? So it, I can't just wait until inspiration hits me. You know, it doesn't work that way. And wonderfully now with computers, you can type away, even if it's a pile of baloney, mm-hmm. and erase it and start all over again. We're not back in the di- days of the typewriter. So it makes it just easier for things to flow. But um, yeah, I mean, it it is a dated, it's a daily job from, you know, eight to five, but it's also... You know, if you are on a roll, um, at least for me, I try not to stop. I mean, I just keep going, take breaks, obviously, to eat and everything. But um, I just really try to keep going, especially when I'm in the research phase and I'm lining up interviews and things like that. I just grab them when I can. And that can be all hours of, you know, time zones and everything. So it's oh, yeah. fluid, should we say, right? Yeah. It's fluid. <laughs> well, as a as a podcaster, I'm, I'm, I've got booking links out. People will just be booking me for morning, afternoon. So yeah. I, I've, I've st- I remember early on in my career, uh, I had a international, more of a show it was uh, geopolitical in nature. Um, and I would be staying up sometimes, you know, two or three o'clock in the morning <laughs> to record an interview. And I, I don't stay up that late anymore. I can't. I can't do it. Yeah, but you go where the interviews are, right? Yeah, and exactly for right. me, I mean, it's it's a little different because the interviews aren't, you know, published that way, like in a podcast. But, you know, when you get something that's good, you sure. 
you, you know, schedule around that person and, Absolutely. you know, building all the resources for this and the sources sourcing for this was really kind of a brick by brick thing. One person would lead to another person, lead to another person mm-hmm. and they all have busy lives. And so you just, oh. as a journalist, you just say, please, pretty please, please. what yes. can I talk to you? Yeah. So you mentioned you're a former prosecutor. Um, okay. So maybe unpack from that world when you would have gotten evidence, how you would have evaluated whether or not it could be admissible into court and then compare that to how you view evidence for your book. Right. Well, evidence for the book is a little different, right? Because I'm not introducing it into court, but it is like the court of public opinion. And in that way is even more stringent. I mean, I have to get, you know, multiple sources especially when things are told from a different perspective. And I'll give you an example. In the book, uh, I interviewed Mark Walk, who is the brother-in-law of Robert Hansen. Walk was actually an FBI agent at the same time. And he says that he tried to turn his brother-in-law in, that he'd seen some you know, weird things going on, money and all of this, and we can get to that later. But he says he went to Jim Lyle, this other FBI agent, his supervisor, and tried to report it, okay? If that's true, and the FBI dropped the ball on that, which is what Walk alleges, that's bad, right? They could have caught him a lot sooner. But you have to get both sides. So the supervisor that he spoke with said that didn't happen, that it wasn't that conversation. It was an entirely different conversation. And that's why the FBI didn't follow through. Well, in the book, I put both versions in and I, I think I kind of nudge the readers as to what I'm thinking, but I let the readers decide because the evidence is on both sides. It's like somebody seeing, you know, witnessing a car accident or something. They see things, you know, what well, was a blue car and a green or a green car and a blue, whatever, um, different perspective. So I put that in the book and let the readers sift through the evidence and figure out what they think actually happened. In a courtroom, you're more didactic, right? You're you're introducing exhibit A and you're saying it means this. And as a journalist, you almost do that, but I like the reader to make their own opinions and come up with their own surmisals after they look at all the evidence. Okay, that's helpful. So with that being said, you said it's about a two-year process. There's a bunch yeah. of reviews that you're conducting. So you, you, you are, in a sense, though, building a case, right? Because you, you're building a case, um, you know, A, you've got a book deal, so you've had to convince someone, hey, this is a book worth publishing. Uh, but <laughs> right. beyond that, beyond that, you have to build a case that, you know, for, for the reader to keep reading, to be invested. And, and right. so it, it is, there is, the, the, um, you, you find that a lot of um, best-selling authors are former lawyers because I think they have that knack for research. You know, they like, they like to kind of dig in there. And so it, it, right. they like to kind of build a case. And so... Do you, when you're writing a book like this one or some of your other books, um, we've had on documentary filmmakers before, and, and they'll talk about there's a certain story within the story they're trying to tell. So it's not the whole story. They're just trying to focus in on this pers- this perspective. Is that kind of what you're trying to accomplish with your books? Yes, and I'll give you a good example of that in this book. There's a whole other story going on with the CIA agent that the FBI targeted and said, this is the bad guy. This is our mole, Brian Kelly. Well, Brian Kelly was not the mole. His life was destroyed, really, by this. And I spoke with his widow, Patricia McCarthy, who was also a trial lawyer, and got you know information from her. Then Mark Walk again, the brother-in-law, he gave me emails that had transpired between him and Kelly. Kelly's no longer with us. Um, those emails had never been seen before, never published, and... So I thought, oh my gosh, it's Brian Kelly's story. Right there, you could write a book about him and what happened to him and his life. Well, I didn't have that, I didn't have that opportunity in this book because it just, again, it would have been two books. Um, I spoke with Brian Kelly's kids. I mean, I spoke with everybody around him and I tried to give as full a version of that, that side story as possible, but it's a few chapters in the book, right? So it's a side story. Um, and there are, there are lots of examples of that, you know, with the book I did on Charles Manson. I mean, shoot, you could have focused on one of the women or just the women, you know, in the family and written something about that. But that's not what I was looking at. I was looking at it. How did they hunt him down? 
-hmm. what were the prosecutorial methods? And same here, kind of what did the FBI do well and where did they screw up? And, you know, trying to kind of build that story arc. And a good point you said, too, about keeping the readers interested. It's harder, right, when if they have a sense of history, they know what happened to Hanson. They know he's locked up. They know the end of the story. The same with the Unabomber's um, book that I wrote before this one. You know where Ted Kaczynski is. You know, he's in prison. Mm -hmm. So to make it a thriller, kind of, when you know the result, is a challenge. But... I hope I succeeded in that I tried to keep the chapters short. I try to write, even though it's fiction, I try to, uh, even though it's nonfiction, I try to write it almost as fiction. So you kind of forget this is, these are real people and this really happened. It can almost be sort of a thriller, you know, what's going to happen next. And that's what I try to do in all of my nonfictions. Okay. So with that being said, let's talk about the book now. That's a, I, like, I like to kind of get the background sure. from the author or director, whoever it is, to understand where we're going because, um, you know, I, I was, um, well, I'll get to that in a little bit about a different book I was reading and, and kind of this some of the thoughts that happens. But so give me, you said Robert Hansen. Um, I think you said your dad's the first time you heard the name. What's your first memory of hearing his story? From my dad, really, um, that, you know, after his arrest, you know, how could this guy have eluded the FBI for so long. And you got to realize that 99.9% of FBI agents are in there for the right reason, right? They, they want to do good. They want to help. They want to wear the white hat and get the bad guys. And that's what I grew up with. And those are the agents that I worked with in my cases, but you have somebody like Hanson and it blows the whole thing up. You know, it just blows it up. It just shows where the FBI is faulty, where they didn't, see that it was one of their own. They didn't want to look internally. And so um, that story, that kernel from my dad just kind of grew an interest for me over the years. And so did your dad know him well? Were they kind of? No, no, my dad didn't know him at all. Um, But it was just that, that, you know, my dad's now 86 years old. And it was just so hard for him. You know, he'd been well retired at that point. He was doing background checks okay. on people, which a lot of retired agents do. But it was just like, how could this have happened? You know, and that's what I wanted to find out. What is it about society where, you know, if you are an FBI agent or a football coach or whatever, and something bad happens to your organization team, et cetera, you, you feel as if, you, you know, you're part of it, even though you might not have been, what, can you explain the psychology of that? Like this to me, it's very, you know, you could be a FBI right. in Alaska and like Hanson goes down you're like, ah, right. Screwed up for us all. It, it, it screws up the whole morale, right? Because you are a member of a team. And I'll tell you this, it, it's worked for me in the past to be part of that team because when I make these cold calls and they are cold calls to try to get people like Mike Rochford, for example, who plays a key role in the investigation, he didn't know me. But I said, I'm a former federal prosecutor. My dad is Richard Wheel. You can look him up. So I'm part of the federal family. It sounds like a mafia, but it's not. But it's just, aside from just being a journalist, and I don't have any, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not saying anything demeaning about just being a journalist. I'm just saying, in addition to that, it's hard to hang up the phone on me. Because wait a second, you're going to hang up the phone on the daughter of a former F- of an FBI agent, mm-hmm. a federal prosecutor, mm, probably not. And so they'll at least let me talk and give my pitch about why I need to interview them for the book. And so it helps me to be part of the team in that respect. But in the same in the same thought pattern, it hurts. You know, when one member of the of the team really screws up, and I don't mean gets hurt on the injured on the field. I mean does something criminal. It hurts everybody. It hurts, you know, the NFL, some, some player is out there, you know, beating on somebody that's going to hurt the image of the whole NFL. Right. Oh yeah. Same thing. Absolutely. So going through this process of the, the research process, putting the book together, what were some of the key takeaways that you found some, some common threads talking to the agents, you know, like, Oh man, was there a lot of in hindsight, we could have seen it or is it always like, no, we, we never would have suspected this. Um, yes they should have seen it. Mm. And I think they recognize that now. And Rochford called the should have seen moments, puffs of smoke. In other words, times when Hanson 
um, gave a clue. You know, in the old days, when you interrogated somebody, you brought them into an interrogation room and you'd let them smoke a cigarette. And it was almost like a different kind of polygraph, how that person smoked a cigarette, because if their if their hands were shaking or if the puffs, you know, just depending on how they smoked that cigarette and giving their answers, you could, it was a tell to see whether they were lying or not. So to take that example further, that analogy further, puffs of smoke. You know, when Hansen breaks into a colleague's computer, for example, and he says, oh, 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 yes, I, he was caught. And he says, oh yeah, yeah, I did. I broke into his computer, but um, it was just to see, you know, just to show you all how easily our computers can be hacked. Well, I mean, come on, really? That they believe that? They should have right. followed through. Right. You know, and there were more examples of those puffs of smoke. The other strand that kind of ran through, and this what kind of this surprised me, is that in all of the interviews, I started with kind of a not started, but I threw in there at the end kind of a tagline. Hey, could there be another Hansen today? Hmm. And I don't know why I started saying that, but after I interviewed two or three or four or five of them, and they all said the same thing, yes, and there probably already is, I thought, oh my gosh, that's a revelation. I need to ask that of everyone I speak with. And 100% of them said yes, and there probably already is. Many of them did. Wow. That was a revelation to me. Yeah, and I think the comment I was going to make earlier um, is I just got to reading the book. Um, I think it's called the American cartel about the, um, the fentanyl crisis anyway, right. and um, going through that book, what you find is that, you know, the DEA goes after these big drug companies, yeah, American cartels, what's called, um, right. they go to these big, these big drug companies and then they, how they treat them um, is, is quite infuriating because a lot of times they will be doing what I would consider as criminal negligence and should be prosecuted and, and maybe even sent to, you know, death row, depending on how far you right. take it. And right. they're going to find, they're going to find because it's a drug company and there's these pressure. Right. And so when I hear you talk about this, it's also interesting because from the general public's standpoint, when you hear them say, well, yeah, they, they, they saw these signs and let them go. I, I would imagine many Americans would go, yeah, they wouldn't treat me like that though. And that's where I think these books, sometimes they open up these doors and how do we as society get maybe the FBI to, to hear that and go, yeah, you, you're not giving me, if I lied to a federal agent, even on accident, I could be prosecuted. Like, how do you, yeah. How do you get it to where you're giving me that same benefit of the doubt that you're giving the spy? You're right, right, right. It, it's hard, right? Because they now acknowledged they screwed up. So they should have been actually more stringent on Hanson. Like he went through 20 years of being an FBI agent mm -hmm. and he was never polygraphed. You know, he was never drug tested. He Financial um, statements when he first joined were never checked and, you know, reassessed. I mean, after after five years of being a prosecutor, I my whole security clearance had to be reevaluated and redone oh, because, wow. you know, yeah. So they were on me. Right. Drug tests. Any time could have happened. Uh, polygraph. I knew any time could happen. So that kind of keeps you on the straight and narrow. Not that I would have gone off it, but, but you know, that, that certainly motivates you. Um, for the general public, that's hard because if you lie to an FBI agent, bam. I mean, think Martha Stewart, right? right. That was the crime, was the cover-up, was the lying to the FBI, the FBI agents. We would say that was intentional. If you accidentally lie to an FBI agent, um, I suppose you can try to clean it up, but they're going to come after you hard. I mean, that's just, that's just their MO and they should have gone after Hanson harder. It's not that he should have gotten an easier treatment and we should get easier treatments. It's that he, they should have gone after him harder and they have to keep an eye on all of us if we're potentially lying to them. Well, I would, don't get the I would argue that the First Amendment should protect us from accidentally lying to the feds, but we can have that discuss another day, right. just another day. Um, so Hanson, how was he recruited? What's his process? Like, how did they, like, like what, how, how do you get this cat to, and how do you, because, you know, the one of the things about, I don't know if you, did you watch the show The Americans? 
Yes, yes, okay. I so love that. One of the things about the Americans was, uh, it, of course, it's a fictional show, but th- th- at least they make you feel like, okay, they need to have a second generation kid because they can raise him up through the, the ranks. Right. He'll be an actual or she'll be an actual born citizen, whereas you're not. You can't make it through. It's too tough. So, Hanson, give me the background of this guy. Well, but you used the key word. How was he recruited? Um, he wasn't. Mm. He went to them. He mm-hmm. went to them first and said, Hey, he didn't say I'm Robert Hansen, FBI agent. He said, I'm a person with a lot of knowledge and it's going to be, you know, worthwhile for you to pay me. And he went to, to the Russians. And the first tip he gave was a really quote unquote good one for the Russians about this guy, Polyakov, who was one of our key assets in Russia. And by assets, I mean, people that we have, FBI, CIA has on the ground in Russia, China, North Korea to give us intel. Well, anyway, he gave over the information about who this guy Polyakov was or and what he was doing. The Russians nabbed him and they don't have, you know, great trial system. Um, they my first chapter is all about their execution of Polyakov. And it's pretty awful the way they did it. And they videotaped it. So to deter any other would be spies. So after that and after that information that Hansen gave over, about Polyakov, he was off to the races with the Russians and the Russians played him. They, you know, sent flowery letters about how wonderful he is and how they're, they're comrades and their relationship, it goes way beyond money. And for Hansen, he wasn't getting that kind of adoration in the office. The FBI agents around him thought he was kind of dorky, right? He's a guy who's dressed all in black, he kind of has this weird whisper. He's got a very dour expression. He doesn't want to join in the social activities. So he wasn't, you know, adored like the Russians played, played him. So, and obviously money played into it for him. The adoration, this feeling like he's James Bond. You know, I spoke with his best friend, Jack Hoshauer, who said, oh my gosh, you know, he's always wanted to be like a James Bond type character. So that played into it. Um, but this feeling like he was just smarter. I mean, we all know people like this and stay away from them, Ryan. But those people who are in the room who's like, they are the smartest person in the room and they're going to show you again and again right. and again. Hey, that's Hanson. And he wasn't getting that affirmation from his colleagues. So he went elsewhere. Plus he got a bunch of money. And, and so when he's self-recruiting i guess yeah, yeah self-recruiting himself to the to the russians is he is he a loner does he have a family wife kids this- he's a he's an absolute loner in the act itself mm-hmm. of spying but no he's devout catholic he's married to bonnie he has you know i think four or five kids um and he puts them all in parochial Catholic school. He's Opus Dei, which is a, you know, a sect of, of Catholicism, goes to mass every day, um, has the outward appearance of being a devout Catholic, you know, talks about how the Russians are godless people, you know, mm. and how they're communists and all of this. And so it's just the strangest thing because it's sort of like the Americans, right? He has this one persona, for the world and his colleagues and his family and a completely entirely different one for the Russians. And it's important to bring up the Catholic thing, because if you're perhaps not religious, you might not realize that, yeah, for the Catholics to, uh, if you're a devout Catholic um, to to partner up with the communists who are denying the existence of God would be a weird partnership. Right. Right. So um, yeah, that, that is, that is weird. And so. Well, I think, I think Hansen was a convenient Catholic, right? He wasn't Catholic before he married Bonnie. Bonnie was Catholic. And so he converted to Catholicism. He did all the things. I mean, that's Hansen. He can compartmentalize. And that's what the psychiatrist, Dr. Charney, told me. This guy can compartmentalize like nobody's business. I mean, we all do it to an extent. Sure. But this guy, you know, I have, I have this life here and this life here. And I can compartmentalize them and functions is fine. I, I don't think I could do that, <laughs> but Hanson was a master at compartmentalization. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I'm saying, but just, just to give the appearance of a, of a devout Catholic, uh, yeah. devout Protestant, you, you wouldn't think, oh, they're going to go work with the commies because, no. you know, you know they're, they're godless. And like you said, and so it's, it's yeah. a very, it's a very, it's, it's, it's a good cover. <laughs> I mean, it's it's great cover. And they never thought, he, they never, 
kind of, this is weird to say, but they never elevated him, they being the FBI, to, to spy sat status. They thought he was kind of dorky. Mm -hmm. He was really into IT, really into computers. And by and large, the FBI kind of lacks in computerization. I mean, when I was a prosecutor, they'd have to send their, what they're called 302s, their reports. Uh, I was in Seattle. They'd have to send their reports out to Minnesota to get them typed. I mean, it was like, really? I got a murder case here. I don't have three weeks to wait for your type notes. And they're just bad. They just, they're kind of knock down doors, make arrests, you know, bill cases. They're not really good at IT, but Hanson was. And so they just kind of thought he was the dorky IT guy, but spy, no, that's not Hanson. What was his marriage like? Weird, um, really weird. He's still married to Bonnie and Bonnie still gets his pension. That was one of the agreements that, that they made with the feds. Um, so she's still married to him, but he was pretty awful to her. I mean, he sent, and this is in the book, he sent photos of her naked to his friend that I mentioned, Jack Hoshauer, while Jack was you know, fighting for our country. So Jack opens up this package and sees these pictures of Bonnie naked. And the only rationalization that Jack gave me for that was he maybe Hanson was thinking he was trying to cheer up, you know, somebody who's out there fighting for our country and you know risking his life. But Hoshauer thought it was weird. Um, he videotaped Bonnie in sexual things without her knowledge, kind of making her into, you know, a soft porn star without her wanting. This is a strict Bonnie was strict Catholic, is strict Catholic. So he treated her awful and he awfully, and he had a mistress. I couldn't confirm whether they actually had sex or not, but he had a, this was a stripper that he was giving money to and going on flights with and that kind of thing. So, I mean, she was pretty awful to his wife. And Bonnie's still with him, you said. Bonnie's still with him. Now, is that because she loves him? Um, Is that because of Catholicism or is that because she's getting his pension? I mean, maybe a combination of all. Yes, could be the, it could be yes. Right? Could be yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so, so you have a guy who self-recruits. He doesn't have a good marriage, which I was curious. When you said when you talk about the compartmentalization, I'm, I'm wondering, does he have – it would seem that he can't have a good marriage, right? Because that's one thing that that's kind of hard to – you're just right. too much there. Um, you got to be, so make- be honorable. you got to be loyal, all right. those things. And he wasn't any of those things. Yeah. Oh, in fact, Ryan – uh, I might mention that early on, another Papa Smoke was Bonnie um, was kind of going through their sock drawer or underwear drawer or something like that, and you know just a basic drawer in their in their uh, in their um, in their bedroom, and she finds all this money, and so she thinks it's cash. So th- she thinks that maybe it's Hanson's you know money that he needs for his mistress. So she goes to Hanson. She confronts him about the money. And he, I'm kind of making a joke of here. I don't mean to be, be but he says, oh, no, no, I wasn't, I, I'm not, it's not for a mistress. I'm just spying for the Russians. Like, oh, that's so much better. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry. I'm being loyal to you, just not my country. Wow. So Bonnie is in, upset about it, but not as upset as if it had been a mistress. But so she, what they do is they go to the Catholic, Catholic priest. And the priest says, you know, spying bad, don't do it anymore but I'll absolve you if you just hand over the money that you've made so far to the church, which Hanson does. So he was being serious. He wasn't like making a joke. Oh, I was spying for, he was confessing to her. A hundred percent serious. They went to the priest because Bonnie made them go instead of going to law enforcement or going to her brother-in-law and which is, which would have been law enforcement. And so the priest says, yeah, get the money over. So Hanson does this early on in his spying. Mm -hmm. So he gives the money over to the priest or the church and Bonnie thinks, okay, it's over. And she doesn't go any further with it. And Hanson stops for a little bit and starts up again and doesn't get caught by Bonnie this time. He, he does things like, you know, dig, dig holes for it in the backyard. Um, but, you know, one wonders because, you know, throughout their marriage, Bonnie paid for things in cash. You know, her, her uh, allowance was all in cash. You know, wouldn't you think that, yeah. I know I would ask, if I were in her position, how can we afford this? How can we afford this really nice house in Scarsdale, which is a nice suburb in New York? How can we afford this? I mean, my own dad, Ryan, left the FBI when they were going to move him to New York. He'd been, uh, we'd been in Fort Worth during the Kennedy assassination, been in a lot of different places. 
they wanted to move him to Manhattan. And he said, I got this little girl and wife. I can't afford it. Mm. I can't afford to do that and not have to be commuting two hours a day to the office. So he quit. He resigned and became a federal prosecutor. Mm. Um, so he still was in service, but, you know, different way. It, you know, wouldn't Bonnie have ever asked that? You know, how can we afford parochial school for all our kids? Right. Well, okay. So, so two things on that. One, um, we just did a podcast about the Lori Vallow story and you yeah. watch her poor mom get interviewed just like days before they find the kid's body. And you're, you're like, Oh no, mom. And so you feel so bad. And then yet you're wondering, how do you not suspect your daughter's done something when she's flying to Hawaii right? and the kids are missing, you know? Yeah. And so that's a, such a horrible story. It's oh, a terrible story. But, oh. but, so I, I'm with you going, how do you not wonder? But then you see these stories and you go, I guess people just get in such denial. They're denial. They, they just yeah. progress. But what about the FBI agents to your point? So I get, I get, I get the wife, she's getting cash, right. she's getting her bag, she's getting whatever shopping, whatever There's it is she one, wants. Right. The kids are at this nice school, nice yep. neighborhood. Don't ask, don't tell. Right. He's doing great at work. I, okay. So I, I, I can kind of get that right. But what about the other FBI agents going, wait, wait, I know, like, I'm assuming all FBI agents have a pretty good idea. If you get this rank, you get this pay. So they should know she's not working. How do they miss it? They... The, the idea is that they think it's Bonnie's money that, you know, it's from her family. That's how they can afford it. But here's the thing. Why weren't they doing updated financials on him? Why weren't they, you know, every, like I was telling you about, you know, my whole security clearance had to be done, redone. And I had to go back to my kindergarten teacher, basically. Again, you know, she's like, really? FBI is back again? But, you know, they did, they, and they were constantly doing financial checks. Why didn't they do that with Hanson? Okay, I have to ask. Why? I have to ask. The, I have to ask. Yeah. Because the person in charge of that knew Hanson was a mole. Is that possible? Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm hearing you say it over and over again. Like, is it possible that the, the person that, that like sends that thing out was like, hey, Hanson's one of our guys, therefore, like, no? I, I'm not trying to be conspiracy theory. I'm just saying, like, if it's so obvious. No, 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 no. I mean, yeah, I know. I know what you're saying. It just, it, the reason that wouldn't work um, is that it went on for so long. Too long. Okay. Right. There were so many heads of the FBI that, you know, how would, how would they, how would that have you know, happened for so long? And the second thing is the obvious follow-up to that, right? Is that if they knew then they would be getting a kickback and Hanson wasn't making all that much money. I mean, they paid the source, to, the Russian source that finally gave us the information about Hanson's identity. They paid that guy $7 million. Mm -hmm. Russian. Mm -hmm. I don't think Hanson got anywhere near that in his 20 years. I mean, maybe a million plus diamonds and things like that. There wasn't really enough for a big kickback. So I think the longevity of it and the fact that there wasn't room for paying bribes leads me to think, no, it was just some incompetence on part of the FBI. Okay. And well. this, yeah, and this idea, you gotta realize too, again, about the federal family is that once you're in, there's trust mm -hmm. and people around you are trusted and that's necessary because you are literally knocking down doors and arresting people and pulling out your gun and you want to make sure you, you have to trust the person next sure. to you. But it's like, I think it's Ronald Reagan. Didn't he say um, trust, but verify? Yeah. And could it be more true here? Trust, sure, but verify. And then this would have been blown up a lot faster. Okay. I just had to ask this because yeah, you no, said no, a few no, times, it's like, like, this feels like, okay. And I guess one more thing on just the money stuff, the IRS, his taxes, I guess, because it's also, that's how they get all these guys in the drug world is like, they, they sure. can't, they're buying stuff they can't afford. Sure. Nobody did never, anything. Never got audited for taxes. Nope. If there was a, a suspicious person out there, they didn't. And maybe it was just because Hanson was, didn't, you know, he wasn't kind of this dashing, you know, what we think of the James Bond, right. sort of, just kind of a nerd, you know, just always working on those computers and, um, not really socializing anybody and talking about the commies and all that. Mm -hmm. He's sort of the least person you would expect. Mm. Okay. So he's terrible to his wife, as you said. Yes. Perhaps she knows, doesn't know in the United States, you don't have to testify against your spouse. So, right. you know, who, give who her a pass. 
yeah, right. yeah. You just we'll just put that to the side. Um, what about what about the kids? What about the kids? Because it's gonna be traumatic. I've got four kids myself. I mean, I'm, I'm not a spy. Yeah. Good. Um, <laughs> yet, yet. Uh, if you want to call me, I don't have any secrets, but I'm happy to talk to you. That's the thing. Um, we don't have any secrets to sell. Secrets, so. So, um, <laughs> what about the kids? How, how is this for them? Um, I wasn't able to interview the kids or the wife per the plea agreement with the government. None of they they're untouchable as far as you know getting interviews. And I know that one the one of the daughters is actually a professor and doing quite well. They all graduated, and uh, I think some of them changed their names. Sure. But you know, can you imagine Father's Day? Mm-hmm. Imagine his birthday. You know, he's in a maximum security prison along with El Chapo and the Unabomber where he only gets out one hour a day out of solitary confinement. And you're his kid. Still in solitary? Still in solitary, 23 hours. I've heard from people who have seen him that he looks horrible. I bet. You know what? Fine. (laughs) I'm not taking a stance on it. I'm just saying 23 hours a day for 20 years. I'm is, sorry. Is well, you know what? It was either that or death. Yeah. So I don't know what you would choose in that scenario, but yeah. that's what he got. And I'm not feeling sorry for him. That man has multiple deaths on his hand. He had blood on his hand mm. from what he did and what he sold. Not just the deaths, but the secrets, the danger he put the United States in. Um, the horrible morale, obviously for the FBI, but he literally has a lot of blood on his hands. So I'm not feeling too sorry for him. Okay, let's talk about that because that's an interesting, just philosophical debate. He never killed anybody that I know of, right? It's it's all, he's an accessory. It would be kind of a term, right? On some level? Well, think about, okay, let's go back to Charles Manson. Mm-hmm. Uh, Manson never killed anybody. Tex Watson and the girls were the ones that actually did the killings. In fact, right. I was at Tex Watson's latest last parole hearing a couple of years ago when I was researching this book. And this man just, you know, tells a story about what he did. And Charles Manson though, was arrested and convicted, rightly so, for the actual murders. Because once you're in that conspiracy ring, and you've been a, a substan- you've taken substantial steps towards the end of that conspiracy, in this case, murder, you're, yeah, you're as guilty of murder as Tex Watson, who actually, you know, helped wielded the knife. Same here. I mean, no, he didn't actually go out and put, you know, Polyakov in the fire mm-hmm. um, and burn him, but his actions led to the Russians being able to do that. And that happened multiple times with Russian assets. And, you know, what about their families and their kids? Sure. It's no, you know, no, I wasn't trying to say you should or shouldn't. I'm saying that it, it's when we deal with you know conspiracy rings or accessories to crimes, it's it's um a question that you have to kind of think through. And so your argument, if, as I understand it here, is um with Manson, Manson knew that they were gonna get murdered. Did he right. know that these people were gonna get murdered, or was it reasonable for him to presume it was uh, let's say it's very reasonable? Okay. I mean, again, these are, we're talking about the KGB, we're talking about the Russians. I mean, they, um, they just kill people. Yeah. Once they found this out, they just killed them. And that's actually how the FBI finally became to realize that there was a mole in the FBI or that there was a mole. They didn't know it was in the FBI, but there was a mole because Mike Rochford, the guy that I was mentioning before, FBI agent, he was in charge of all the Russian assets and not to make too light of it, but basically he woke up one day and he said, holy jeez, you know, um, we don't have anybody left mm-hmm. of Russian assets. They're all dead. The Russians have killed them because they know their identity. So what happened? There must be somebody in the inside informing the Russians. And he was right, of course. They got the wrong guy at first, but he was right about, you know, somebody informing the Russians about these Russian assets. Yeah, and that's one of the, the sad parts of the story too is, is the wrong guy gets the finger pointed at him. How, how did that transpire? Well, when they figured out that there was a mole, the FBI came up with a team they, and they put them in sort of a vaulted area uh, down, you know, down in a basement. So I called them the vault people. And they put together a matrix of who could possibly have been the spy, you know, put, pulling them on which agent was on which case, that kind of thing. And that's how they came up with uh, Brian Kelly, the CIA agent. 
And I would posit that the reason they came up with the wrong guy to begin with is because they didn't want to look internally. They didn't want to think it could be an FBI agent. So if it's not FBI, then it must be CIA and hence Brian Kelly, who was wrongly charged. So why did they, was there, I mean, you talk about these puffs of smoke. Was there some puffs of smoke with Brian Kelly too? Like, why, how does it get to the process of him being charged? He fit into the matrix. I mean, basically Brian Kelly was just a really, really good agent who also got lucky on some cases, but they looked at different cases where, you know, um, the, the leaks could have come from. And Brian Kelly was involved in a lot of them because he was a really good agent and he was catching people and, you know, doing good stuff. And so they thought, um, this must be our guy. And again, I, I just think it was because they were blinded to thinking that one of their own could have done it. And Rochford even admits that. I mean, it's in the book, you know, that, that in retrospect, and one of the great things about this is I have the, you know, I have now, we have now hindsight of 20 years. So these people, these agents that worked on it, a little maybe um, the sting is gone a little bit. And so they're more truthful. Does that make sense? And Rochford says, yeah, I mean, we really, we screwed up in the beginning and he feels horrible about Brian Kelly. Um, but it was clearly because they didn't want to look internally and think it was somebody on the inside. And was Hanson in any way trying to shift the investigation towards Brian Kelly or is he unaware that he's this watching this all? He's watching it all via computer because he's got all the computer access to everything that happens in the FBI. So he knows exactly what's going on. And he's, I'm sure, relieved when they focus on Brian Kelly and think it's Brian Kelly. Right. And Brian Kelly took a, it was awful. Brian Kelly took a polygraph and, um, you know, he passed the polygraph and Rochford and the other said to the polygrapher, you must've screwed up. It must've been the test because he couldn't possibly be innocent. You know, so that, again, that was a mess up. They shouldn't have done that. But they were so focused that this had to be the guy, they had to be right that they were blinded to other options, i.e. Hansen. So what ultimately is the, the straw that breaks the camel's back? And it's got to be Hansen. It was, again, Rochford. He did have a source in Russia that he cultivated. There's some kind of funny scenes in the book about how he cultivated this guy from Russia. Um, but the bottom line is we paid the government, U.S. government between the FBI and the CIA paid this guy, this Russian, $7 million to give over, basically the, the main thing he gave over, he gave over several things, but the main thing he gave over was an audio cassette of the mole speaking with the Russian handler, Cherkoshin. And so they get this audio cassette. It's obviously top, top secret. That people in the vault start listening to it because they need to identify the voice as, you know, what agent could it possibly be? Because this is, now we know this is the mole. And they listen and they listen and they listen and they all kind of write their notes on pieces of paper so they don't, you know, they kind of all put the pieces of paper in a, in a pile. And it's Hanson, much to their surprise. Remember I said earlier, he kind of spoke in a whisper, mm -hmm. um, kind of a, you know, a, a, a voice you would remember. Not necessarily favorably, but you would remember it. Sure. We all wrote down on a little piece of paper, Robert Hansen. Wow. But then, now here's where the FBI did a great job. They, Hansen was only four months from mandatory retirement. Four months. Mm. They knew they didn't have enough evidence to convict him with just what this Russian had given him in this audio cassette. Because a Russian would never testify. Mm -hmm. Can't put him on the stand. I mean, he's in witness protection with his family. Gosh knows where. Um, so what are you going to do? So they set Hanson up. They gave him a fake job in a fake office that they had wired and everything, a fake new assistant, um, who was, you know, basically spying on him and they spied on him and they searched his home. They didn't search his home until they were there and they were able to make the arrest because they were watching him. They were monitoring him, you know, for these months before he retired. But imagine if, if they hadn't gotten him within that four month frame, he would have retired and been gone and they wouldn't have had the evidence they need to you know, prosecute him in a court of law. Wow. So once they figured it out, they did a really, really good job. You know, it's only the FBI or the CIA can do. Now, did you write Hanson a letter? Cause I think with Kaczynski, you can write him letters. He writes back. Did you write Hanson a letter to see if he would respond? I wrote, 
I wrote to both Kaczynski and Manson. I did not write to Hansen because I knew about the plea agreement that he has with the government. So it was, you know, it was- So, his, so the plea agreement permits him as well as his wife and kids from talking? Yes, prohibited. They cannot speak with anybody else. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because they were debriefed. They told, you know, he told whatever other secrets he had. So, you know, we, we hope so. And that was what got him his freedom. Well, freedom, I mean, one hour a day, yeah, solitary confinement. Well, I'm about but, to say, at this, at this point that we yeah. 78, he might as well, if he's going to talk. You know, he's, it's, it saved his life, um, what should we say, you know, to just yeah. let him go to prison. But he, uh, yeah, he can't, he can't speak to anybody. So I, I didn't waste my time um, sending him a letter. Okay, I'll send him one and let you know if he responds. Oh yeah, go okay. good. Send him a thank you. You're a great podcast. Thank you so much for being a subject. How you doing? How you doing? Hope you're, hope you're not doing well. Hope you're really miserable. <laughs> okay, what was the biggest surprise that you uncovered? That you you know uncovered, found out re researching this book? Um, well, it was very exciting to find that correspondence between the brother-in-law and the guy that was falsely accused to find that e those emails correspondence and they were kind of you know you gone off earlier and saying what could have been somebody higher up they were surmising back and forth about who it could be and why Hansen wasn't discovered and those had never been seen before Mark Walk generously gave me access to those emails and it was just so the, the dead man kind of came alive you know because he could speak through the emails the other thing that was really fascinating to me um, is that answer that they all gave which was, yes, there could be another Hanson today. And, you know, I'm sorry, but that has huge ramifications for our intelligence now. I mean, if that's true, we need to know it. We as a public need to know it. We need to put pressure on the FBI to make sure that these safeguards they implemented post Hanson are working. You know, that people really are checked and not just sloppily, but it's really done. Because as we talked about, Hanson, could, he, Hanson wasn't the best spy in the world. He could have been caught much earlier if the FBI had been on it earlier. So we need to, as a public, say, hey, we know the story about Hanson. We know it can happen again. It's easier now in some ways because of the cyber world, right? You don't have to take out briefcases full of documents. You don't have to copy them on the Xerox machine as Hanson was doing back in the day. You just put on a little thumb drive and walk out. So it's easier and even more um, desperate, right? We have a, we're in a horrible uh, situation right now with Russia, our relationship. We need Russian assets. And the idea of being compromised by an FBI agent is just anathema, I think, to all of us. We need to make sure that that's not done again. And if it has been done, if that breach has been, if somebody has breached, that we know about, it, we shut it down. What is the one unanswered question that you left after doing all this work that you would like to have answered, obviously. Why? Okay. I believe Mark Walk. I believe he did try to turn his brother-in-law in. Why did they not follow up with it? Why did they not follow up with that puff of smoke? If you can take away and say, oh, you know, hacking into the colleague, all right. Maybe that, you know, it kind of gets away with that because of his computer background. But when his brother-in-law comes in and says, hey, Bonnie, the wife found all this money. It was kind of a family thing. They all knew about it. Hey, Bonnie's talking about retiring in Poland. What? I mean, we're in, you know, we're still in Cold War land. You know, why would an FBI agent's wife be talking about retiring in Poland? And he knew that there was a hunt on for a mole. You know, so Walk put that all together and brought it to Lyle. Why wasn't that picked up? And I don't know that we'll ever answer that because Lyle says, no, the conversation didn't happen that way. But I tend to think it did. I tend to think it did. And I wonder why it wasn't followed up. Okay. Last I mean, question. Never know. Last we'll question. Never know the answer. Do you enjoy covering the true crime better than the political stuff? Uh, yeah, it's more in my, it's more my wheelhouse, pardon mm -hmm. the pun. Um, I grew up with that, you know, it's storytelling to me mm -hmm. and the political stuff. I mean, right now and probably always is such a mess. Yeah. Um, and I'm not a politician. So for me to, 
you know, say anything really political. I don't have the background for that. Mine is pure analysis, you know, as a journalist and as a legal analyst. And what you'll get is here's, you know, a distilled version. You get to make up your mind. Um, you know, I can't, I said in this podcast, what I think about really what happened with Mark Walk, but in the book, I leave it up to you. So that's my job as an analyst is mm-hmm. to synthesize and analyze what I'm given, not make up things, not, you know, um, elaborate things, mm-hmm. not at all. You just get the straight unvarnished truth, yeah. um, such as the best we can find it. Yeah. I, I think it, it's just interesting now watching, um, you know, I used to spend a lot more time talking politics on a other show I had and I got to where now it's like, man, it's just, you just, it's so hard to have a, a good, honest conversation. Um, stories like these obviously have political ramifications, but there are, they, they, they also though, when they're done well, when you start thinking through it, you know, like um, asking questions, they do lay, uh, raise larger societal questions to your point. If there is a mole, what should we do? Right. Um, you know, I, I would argue, like I said earlier, I'd argue about, lying to the FBI should be a crime. There, there are larger questions at stake that these yeah. stories can bring out that that they're political, but we don't think of them as political. And so it kind of lets us talk about them in a different way. And so- um, well, I, I, They're political, but they shouldn't be divisive um, or divisive political, right. Right? right? We should, I think, all agree that we want an FBI with people that are honorable. We want people not to lie to the FBI. And we want, peop- and we want the FBI to figure out their mistakes quickly and react quickly. And I think those are all things, yes, they have political, I mean, at the very top level, there are politicians involved, mm-hmm. but I dealt with the people that are actually doing the job, mm-hmm. right? And I remember as a prosecutor, when I came in, my boss, I had two bosses. My first boss uh, was a Republican appointed political. My second boss was a Democrat appointed political. Right. And they told me when I came in as a federal prosecutor, you keep your politics at home. Mm-hmm. Keep yeah. that. Do not bring that in to your judgment about whether to prosecute a case, how to prosecute a case. Do not do that. Yes, at the highest level, your boss is a political appointee, but you all are not. And I think that's true of the FBI agent family as well. Yes, there are political people that are appointed at the top, but the line, the line agents, as we call them, the line agents that are out there actually doing God's work and keeping us safe, really, for the most part, leave their politics at home. Okay. We're going to link to the book, obviously, in the show notes. Where else do you want to send people to? Uh, you can go to leasewheelbooks.com, leasewheelbooks.com. That's kind of a hard website to get because mm-hmm. um, you have to spell my name correctly. But, you know, you can order it on Amazon and also your independent bookstores. I mean, I'm a real fan of trying to keep these independent bookstores that are, you know, suffering and, and having a tough time, um, keeping them going as well. Oh, and the other thing, Ryan, is I read this book for the audio version. I actually spent four days in a studio long days Impressive. reading the sucker <laughs> so uh, check out the audiobook because it's me and i'm uh, not a professional i did my best but um i think that you know it's kind of fun to read it and, and go through all these hard russian words you can see how, how well i did or not <laughs> okay so we'll link to your website in the show notes so listeners can just click right there they don't have to worry about there for them uh, of course the book and uh the audiobook as well so lise thank you so much for your time today Ryan, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay, there it is. Lise Wheel in her new book, A Spy in Plain Sight. Be sure to check it out in the show notes, which are at warroommedia.com. Be sure to go there. And oh, by the way, drop a five-star review wherever you may be listening to this podcast at.